Galba, Part Two, from the Lives of the Twelve Caesars, by Gaius Suetonius Tranquillus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Andrew Coleman. The Lives of the Twelve Caesars, by Gaius Suetonius Tranquillus. Translated by Alexander Thompson and edited by T. Forrester. Galba, Part Two. These dangers were followed by the death of Vindex, at which, being extremely discouraged, as if fortune had quite forsaken him, he had thoughts of putting an end to his own life, but receiving advice by his messengers from Rome that Nero was slain, and that all had taken an oath to him as emperor, he laid aside the title of lieutenant, and took upon him that of Caesar. Putting himself upon his march in his general's cloak, and a dagger hanging from his neck before his breast, he did not resume the use of the toga, until Nymphidius Sabinus, prefect of the Praetorian Guards at Rome, with the two lieutenants, Fontius Capito in Germany, and Claudius Massa in Africa, who opposed his advancement, were all put down. Rumours of his cruelty and avarice had reached the city before his arrival, such as that he had punished some cities of Spain and Gaul for not joining him readily, by the imposition of heavy taxes, and some by levelling their walls, and had put to death the governors and procurators with their wives and children, Likewise that a golden crown of fifteen pounds weight, taken out of the temple of Jupiter, with which he was presented by the people of Tarracona, he had melted down, and had exacted from them three ounces, which were wanting in the weight. This report of him was confirmed and increased as soon as he entered the town, for some seamen who had been taken from the fleet and enlisted among the troops by Nero, he obliged to return to their former condition. But they, refusing to comply, and obstinately clinging to the more honourable service under their eagles and standards, he not only dispersed them by a body of horse, but likewise decimated them. He also disbanded a cohort of Germans, which had been formed by the preceding emperors, for their bodyguard, and upon many occasions found very faithful and sent them back into their own country, without giving them any gratuity, pretending that they were more inclined to favour the advancement of Gnaeus Dolabella, near whose gardens they encamped, than his own. The following ridiculous stories were also related of him, but whether with or without foundation I know not, such as that when a more sumptuous entertainment than usual was served up, he fetched a deep groan that when one of the stewards presented him with an account of his expenses, he reached him a dish of legumes from his table as a reward for his care and diligence. And when Canus the piper had played much to his satisfaction, he presented him with his own hand five denarii taken out of his pocket. His arrival, therefore, in town was not very agreeable to the people, and this appeared at the next public spectacle. For when the actors in a farce began a well-known song, Finit, yo, Simus Savilla, Lo, clodpate from his village comes, 
all the spectators, with one voice, went on with the rest, repeating and acting the first verse several times over. He possessed himself of the imperial power with more favour and authority than he administered it. Although he gave many proofs of his being an excellent prince, but these were not so grateful to the people as his misconduct was offensive. He was governed by three favourites, who, because they lived in the palace and were constantly about him, obtained the name of his pedagogues. These were Titus Vinius, who had been his lieutenant in Spain, a man of insatiable avarice, Cornelius Laco, who, from an assessor to the prince, was advanced to be prefect of the Praetorian Guards, a person of intolerable arrogance as well as indolence, and his freedman Icellus, dignified a little before with the privilege of wearing the gold ring and the use of the cognomen Martianus, who became a candidate for the highest honour within the reach of any person of the equestrian order. He resigned himself so implicitly into the power of those three favourites, who governed in everything according to the capricious impulse of their vices and tempers, and his authority was so much abused by them, that the tenor of his conduct was not very consistent with itself. At one time he was more rigorous and frugal, at another more lavish and negligent, than became a prince who had been chosen by the people, and was so far advanced in years. He condemned some men of the first rank in the senatorian and equestrian orders, upon a very slight suspicion, and without trial. He rarely granted the freedom of the city to any one, and the privilege belonging to such as had three children, only to one or two, and that with great difficulty, and only for a limited time. When the judges petitioned to have a sixth decury added to their number, he not only denied them, but abolished the vacation which had been granted them by Claudius for the winter and the beginning of the year. It was thought that he likewise intended to reduce the offices held by senators and men of the equestrian order to a term of two years' continuance, and to bestow them only on those who were unwilling to accept them and had refused them. All the grants of Nero he recalled, saving only the tenth part of them, for this purpose he gave a commission to fifty Roman knights, with orders that if players or wrestlers had sold what had been formerly given them, it should be exacted from the purchasers, since the others, having no doubt spent the money, were not in a condition to pay. But on the other hand, he suffered his attendants and freedmen to sell or give away the revenue of the state, or immunities from taxes, and to punish the innocent, or pardon criminals at pleasure. Nay, when the Roman people were very clamorous for the punishment of Halotus and Tigellinus, two of the most mischievous amongst all the emissaries of Nero, he protected them, and even bestowed on Halotus one of the best procurations in his disposal. And as to Tigellinus, he even reprimanded the people for their cruelty by a proclamation. By this conduct he incurred the hatred of all orders of the people, but especially of the soldiery. For their commanders, having promised them in his name a donative larger than usual, 
upon their taking the oath to him before his arrival at Rome, he refused to make it good, frequently bragging that it was his custom to choose his soldiers, not buy them. Thus the troops became exasperated against him in all quarters. The Praetorian guards he alarmed with apprehensions of danger and unworthy treatment, disbanding many of them occasionally as disaffected to his government and favourers of Nymphidius. But most of all, the army in Upper Germany was incensed against him, as being defrauded of the rewards due to them for the service they had rendered in the insurrection of the Gauls under Vindex. They were, therefore, the first who ventured to break into open mutiny, refusing upon the calends of January to take any oath of allegiance except to the Senate. And they immediately dispatched deputies to the Praetorian troops to let them know they did not like the emperor who had been set up in Spain, and to desire that they would make choice of another who might meet with the approbation of all the armies. Upon receiving intelligence of this, imagining that he was slighted not so much on account of his age as for having no children, he immediately singled out of a company of young persons of rank who came to pay their compliments to him, Piso Frugi Licinianus, a youth of noble descent and great talents, for whom he had before contracted such a regard, that he had appointed him in his will the heir both of his estate and name. Him he now styled his son, and taking him to the camp, adopted him in the presence of the assembled troops, but without making any mention of a donative. This circumstance afforded the better opportunity to Marcus Salvius Otho of accomplishing his object six days after the adoption. Many remarkable prodigies had happened from the very beginning of his reign, which forewarned him of his approaching fate. In every town through which he passed in his way from Spain to Rome, victims were slain on the right and left of the roads, and one of these, which was a bull, being maddened with the stroke of the axe, broke the rope with which it was tied, and running straight against his chariot, with his forefeet elevated, bespattered him with blood. Likewise, as he was alighting, one of the guard, being pushed forward by the crowd, had very nearly wounded him with his lance. And upon his entering the city, and afterwards the palace, he was welcomed with an earthquake, and a noise like the bellowing of cattle. These signs of ill fortune were followed by some that were still more apparently such. Out of all his treasures he had selected a necklace of pearls and jewels, to adorn his statue of fortune at Tusculum. But it suddenly occurring to him that it deserved a more august place, he consecrated it to the Capitoline Venus, and next night he dreamt that fortune appeared to him, complaining that she had been defrauded of the present intended her, and threatening to resume what she had given him. Terrified at this denunciation, at break of day he sent forward some persons to Tusculum to make preparations for a sacrifice which might avert the displeasure of the goddess. And when he himself arrived at the place, he found nothing but some hot embers upon the altar, and an old man in black standing by, 
holding a little incense in a glass, and some wine in an earthen pot. It was remarked, too, that whilst he was sacrificing upon the calends of January, the chaplet fell from his head, and upon his consulting the pullets for omens, they flew away. Further, upon the day of his adopting Piso, when he was to harangue the soldiers, the seat which he used upon those occasions, through the neglect of his attendants, was not placed, according to custom, upon his tribunal. And in the Senate House, his curule chair was set with the back forward. The day before he was slain, as he was sacrificing in the morning, the augur warned him from time to time to be upon his guard, for that he was in danger from assassins, and that they were near at hand. Soon after, he was informed that Otho was in possession of the Praetorian camp, and though most of his friends advised him to repair thither immediately, in hopes that he might quell the tumult by his authority and presence, he resolved to do nothing more than keep close within the palace, and secure himself by guards of the legionary soldiers, who were quartered in different parts about the city. He put on a linen coat of mail, however, remarking at the same time that it would avail him little against the points of so many sorts. But being tempted out by false reports which the conspirators had purposely spread to induce him to venture abroad, some few of those about him too hastily assuring him that the tumult had ceased, the mutineers were apprehended, and the rest coming to congratulate him, resolved to continue firm in their obedience. He went forward to meet them, with so much confidence, that upon a soldier's boasting that he had killed Otho, he asked him, By what authority? and proceeded as far as the forum. There, the knights appointed to dispatch him, making their way through the crowd of citizens, upon seeing him at a distance, halted a while, after which, galloping up to him, now abandoned by all his attendants, they put him to death. Some authors relate that upon their first approach he cried out, What do you mean, fellow soldiers? I am yours and you are mine, and promised them a donative. But the generality of writers relate that he offered his throat to them, saying, Do your work and strike since you are resolved upon it. It is remarkable that not one of those who were at hand ever made any attempt to assist the emperor, and all who were sent for disregarded the summons, except a troop of Germans. They, in consideration of his late kindness, in showing them particular attention during a sickness which prevailed in the camp, flew to his aid, but came too late. For, being not well acquainted with the town, they had taken a circuitous route. He was slain near the Curtian Lake, and there left, until a common soldier, returning from the receipt of his allowance of corn, throwing down the load which he carried, cut off his head. There being upon it no hair by which he might hold it, he hid it in the bosom of his dress, but afterwards, thrusting his thumb into the mouth, he carried it in that manner to Otho, who gave it to the drudges and slaves who attended the soldiers. And they, 
fixing it upon the point of a spear, carried it in derision round the camp, crying out as they went along, You take your fill of joy in your old age. They were irritated to this pitch of rude banter, by a report spread a few days before, that upon someone's commending his person as still florid and vigorous, he replied, Eti moi minos empedoi estin. My strength, as yet, has suffered no decay. A freedman of Petrobius's, who himself had belonged to Nero's family, purchased the head from them at the price of a hundred gold pieces, and threw it into the place where, by Galba's order, his patron had been put to death. At last, after some time, his steward Argius buried it, with the rest of his body, in his own gardens near the Aurelian Way. In person he was of a good size, bald before, with blue eyes and an aquiline nose, and his hands and feet were so distorted with the gout that he could neither wear a shoe, nor turn over the leaves of a book, or so much as hold it. He had likewise an excrescence in his right side, which hung down to that degree that it was with difficulty kept up by a bandage. He is reported to have been a great eater, and usually took his breakfast in the winter-time before day. At supper he fed very heartily, giving the fragments which were left by handfuls to be distributed amongst the attendants. In his lust he was more inclined to the male sex, and such of them too as were old. It is said of him that in Spain, when Icellus, an old catamite of his, brought him the news of Nero's death, he not only kissed him lovingly before company, but begged of him to remove all impediments, and then took him aside into a private apartment. He perished in the seventy-third year of his age, and the seventh month of his reign. The Senate, as soon as they could with safety, ordered a statue to be erected for him upon the naval column, in that part of the forum where he was slain. But Vespasian cancelled the decree, upon a suspicion that he had sent assassins from Spain into Judea to murder him. End of Galba Recording by Andrew Coleman